We've been talking about Nehemiah this summer. We just want to take a little journey through a book of the Bible, and our, our choice is Nehemiah. And, um, you know, if, if we review the background information of Nehemiah a lot, it's just so you guys have a sense of the ongoing theme. So, you know, bear with us. But Nehemiah was living in exile. He was a Jew living in exile in uh, the Persian kingdom. And he heard about how the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and broken down. And when he heard about that, God really broke his heart for the city. And he, what he did in response is he sat down and he prayed. And um, last week we talked about how Nehemiah received God's heart as he was willing to pray. And as he sat and prayed, he received the heart of the Lord that allowed him to go forward. And um, so... Just also, if you, if you missed last week's talk for any reason, they're all online always. Do you guys, I don't know if you guys know that, but on our website, vineyardcleveland.org, you can download them as a podcast, listen to it later, or you can stream it right there. And so if you guys miss one, if you're out of town or whatever, you can stay caught up with us as we journey through. It would be awesome if we can do this together. So, so we found out about how Nehemiah uh, received the heart of God through prayer, and we practiced that as we just prayed together. And so we kind of left, left it in that place, like Nehemiah had this burning in his heart. And at the end of chapter 1, there's this little verse, almost like a little throwaway, but it leads into where we're going. It just said, Nehemiah says, he's the cupbearer to the king. So this foreign king that he's serving under, he uh, was raised to a position of honor, and he was the king's cupbearer, and that gave him access to be before the king. Um, I, I titled this Before the King because this chapter is about Nehemiah's audience with Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia at the time. But it wasn't just about that. And I'll just tell you like the big idea of where I'm going right now, just show my hand completely, because I want you guys to see this as we go through, that although Nehemiah found himself physically before a human king with power, his true life was lived before the true king. I don't mean before like, like previously. I mean before like in front of, like you guys are before me right now, okay? And so Nehemiah lived, he was aware of the true reality that he lived before God, and that's where he found the courage and strength to do the things that he needed to do. All right, so that's where we're going. And as we, so as we read and go through uh, chapter two of Nehemiah, just take a look for that theme, and you'll see how, his perspective on the heavenly things, the, the fact that God was with him, changed everything about how he related to the physical king that was in front of him. All right? So let's pray, and then we will get started here with Nehemiah 2. Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak now. Please open your word to us. Teach us the things that you want us to know Speak to our hearts. We want to walk through this with you. We don't want to talk about your word like you're not here. You're present in the words, and we ask that you'd speak to us in our hearts. I ask, God, that we would live in this moment and every moment before your presence and before your throne. Teach us to walk in the awareness of you and your favor and love and your power.
We bless you and invite you into everything now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you guys want to read along with me. I'm just going to read it in chunks, and then we'll stop and talk about it a little bit. There's a lot, a lot going on here. So I'm going to start in verse 1 of Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, so he's bringing it. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So, the thing about the Bible is it describes in in pretty simple and straightforward words a lot of interactions that are like really crazy and weighty. And this is one of them. It didn't, like... You could easily miss like the importance of what's going on in those verses, but for for our purposes, I want to look in here and see the things that we might miss in just like reading it too quickly. So uh, the first one is right the very first words. Um, this happened in the month of Nissan, which sounds like a bad car sales event. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> If you, uh, if you were in first service, I'm sorry you had to hear that joke again. <laughs> I'm a dad now, and the, the dad jokes have landed on me real bad. I, I just never thought that would happen, but it really, it really did. So anyway, it's not about 0% down and 1,000 cash back on your maxima. It's about a month in the calendar of the Jews. Now, that might not seem important, but it's important because the first chapter where Nehemiah's heart gets broken, he falls on his face before God happens in the month of Kislev, and that's four months earlier. So we have four months passing between the time when Nehemiah gets this bad news and starts to pray and the time when this event that we're reading about here happens. And It's interesting because Nehemiah's heart was broken as soon as he heard the news, but it says here that he had never been sad in the presence of the king before. And uh, it's a, I mean, it's important for us to think about why. Um, I mean, so Nehemiah's in food service, right? If you've been a server, you understand um, the, the happy servers are the ones that get the tips and keep their job. Um, in Nehemiah's case, part of his job was to make the king's life more fun. And if he uh, came in there looking all sad and gloomy, with a little storm cloud over his head, he, uh, he might lose his job. Uh, depending on the mood, I mean, the Bible's full of stories of kings in bad moods, and uh, you lose more than your job. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty high stakes thing. He had real motivation to uh, at least put on the face of happiness, you know. Um, we could rule out some things. I think it's pretty safe to say that the king didn't go without drinking wine for four months. 
uh, king in that time, no, no chance of that. He was definitely drinking some wine more often than that. So Nehemiah had been before him. I think we could rule out that uh, Nehemiah was just like biding his time too and waiting for the right moment. I feel like uh, four months is a little long for that. So I think, I mean, I don't know, but Nehemiah, it's, he's a hero in the Bible, but he's just a guy like us. He was probably scared, I think. I mean, wouldn't you be? This is, it's like a high-stakes position. You know, it's a position of honor and access, but um, I think he was afraid to be who he really was and allow that part of him to show in this because of the consequences. Um, but at the same time, as we talked about last week, God was shaping his heart through prayer. He was praying, and it says like he was fasting too in chapter one, so this was an ongoing thing. And so I think what finally happened was as God, as he was praying, God was like shaping and remaking his heart to such an extent that finally it had to be released. He had to go ahead and live out the true thing that God was putting in him. And I think that God, God gave him courage to release his authentic heart. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just about showing his real self to the human king, but it was about living in integrity before the holy king, the king of heaven. He wanted to be the same person, you know, whether he, no matter who he was before. So it was about his own integrity. And I think as he, as he saw that, as he lived before the true king, he realized that um, he, he needed to be real no matter the cost. And so he took, he took a bold move, and he just, was, he just was sad. He wasn't pushy. He just was sad because that was how he was really feeling. And uh, I, think, I think there's a couple things we can take away from this early section. One is that when God puts a vision on your heart, it doesn't necessarily mean for you to run and do it right then. You know, this is, this is four months. Now, maybe it was Nehemiah's fear that held him back. You know, uh, we read one commentator in getting ready for this. He said that he was waiting until the second glass of wine to ask, you know. You know, maybe he was biding his time, but really I think that the courage and the the strength to live out the vision was built in him over time. That as the vision, when it arrived, he wasn't maybe ready to walk in it yet. And like God was patient with him over that time and it built that heart in him that could be expressed then later. So our, our, the vision that God gives us is like that too sometimes. There's, there's timing that God has and it doesn't mean we have to rush in right away. If you have vision but you lack the courage for it, over time God will build that in your heart as you pray because he'll change your heart to be like his. And that's, a, that's an important perspective of, like, of living before the true king. The other one um, is that if you walk in who you really are, it can really open some unexpected doors for you. Maybe if you're willing to share your problem with somebody, you might find that you just, you know, 
accidentally, because God doesn't really have accidents, you might accidentally share it with someone that has that same problem and has found their way through and can help you. I mean, the things that we're, that we're growing in, those things, those are where we can like, bring other people along. But if we never share, if we won't live in who we really are, if we just put on a happy face, then we might not experience the, like, the open door that can happen. I mean, crazy things can happen, too. Like, now it doesn't just have to be about, like, your sadness and problems, but if you share God's blessing in your life, if you're willing to share that, it could release that blessing into somebody else's life because they want what you have, and they're like, hey, could you pray for me? Can we talk? Things like that. And also, you know, just like it happened for Nehemiah, God could set you before kings. Do you guys know that God does that? He, he, he put Nehemiah in the place where he was. And this is really important for all of us because you might think that like, you're just, your choices and your life have led up to where you are, but the fact is that God has deployed you as a member of his family to bring love in the place where you are. And he can bring you favor in any system, no matter how corrupt. Artaxerxes was a pagan. They worshipped all sorts of gods. This, this kingdom that Nehemiah rose up through the ranks in, somehow, we don't even know how, but God gave him honor and favor in this kingdom. And God can set us before kings in the same way, whether it's your boss or like a government official. Some of you have that kind of pull. Or maybe you don't even know it yet. <laughs> In Psalm 119, David says, I will uh, tell of your testimonies before kings and I won't be ashamed. And uh, if, we're, if we're willing to do it, I believe God can give us a great audience to share the things that he has for us. God says that in Proverbs that the wise person will serve before kings and not before people that don't matter. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Like God wants to, and already has, in all of our cases, set us in a place where he wants us to be the real thing that's inside us. And that's not just like, oh, be yourself, like listen to your heart, kind of Disney movie sing-along nonsense. That's like the real heart that's inside you is Jesus' spirit is in there. And if you've been sent to this place, I use the term like deployment, but God is like strategically placing you like, in, in places where he wants to show his love through your real heart because that's where he is. Do you guys get that? And I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, just be like a motivational speaker, leave out the bad things. Jesus told the apostles that they would stand before kings because of him, but they were on trial when they were standing before him. Um, it wasn't fun. They were in that kind of scary place where Nehemiah was a lot. And but then, that's really a human perspective, isn't it? Because the courage that those guys showed to speak and testify for God in the face of martyrdom is, and then they're following through on that testimony by actually being martyred. That's what launched the church. Otherwise, it could just still be like a couple thousand people hanging around Jerusalem. But now it's reached millions and billions of us around. So when God sets you before kings before people with influence, 
He does so for a purpose. And that doesn't mean it won't be scary or even dangerous. I mean, we'll see in Nehemiah that he was, he was a dangerous dude. But God will work through it. And the only way to really understand that as, is to live your life before the real king. That's the only way you can stand before a human king and not be afraid of what they can do to you. You know, you have to see the reality. And Nehemiah finally saw it. He got God's heart and he said, okay, God is the real king and regardless of what could happen to me, I have to do this thing that he's put on my heart. Now, just on a much more practical level, walking in integrity and who you really are, the, uh, one of the big knocks on the church in general, not just this church, but like the whole church, is that that's, it's not a place where you can do that. It's like a happy face place. You go in and everything's good and it's all right. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But we, we must create a culture in the church where it's okay for us to be real about the real stuff of life. We have to have it. And that won't start from anybody speaking up here or from anything that we like print in the bulletin. That starts in each one of our hearts. Do you guys get that? That won't start unless all of us do it together. And I mean, you could like wear a sign on you that says, feel free to share your problems with me. And see how that goes? You guys see where I'm going with this, right? It probably isn't going to happen that way. It's probably going to happen with you having the courage to share your real heart with somebody. Hey, be sad in somebody's presence. You can come in here sad if God is breaking your heart. You know that? Hmm. Like you don't think there's Christians that struggle with depression and anxiety and all the things that are real but are finding victory through God? It's a, real, it's a real thing. And so it's much more likely that that culture will be created by you being willing to be honest. And in the same way, in reverse, you might find yourself talking to somebody who has that same problem that you can help. Or at least you can walk through it together and find, find victory and peace that way, too. So it's just it's so important for us to be that. We think... Huh, we think people will be scared away if they see the real stuff. But actually, that's what makes people feel welcome to be your friend, be with you. Without it, people don't, they know that you're not real. I used to wonder, because I thought I was like a good guy, you know, I was like, why don't people like trust me with stuff? But then I realized that I was pretending to be perfect. <laughs> Nobody wants to share their struggles with a perfect person because they're just going to feel bad, you know? You know how that is. If you see someone that meets, pretends to be perfect, you're suspicious of them because you know in your heart that it's not true. You're like, eh. And that's, that's not a bad instinct. But if you see somebody that's real, you can appreciate that. And that culture multiplies. As you do it, it frees up other people to do it, and it, it's like a chain reaction. It's really important that we have that. I mean, it doesn't mean you, like, walk around like Eeyore, like, oh, so sad, doesn't even see my tail. <laughs> you know, but, like, in your small group, maybe, you could, you could have the courage to share with, like, five people, like, the real stuff. 
and you can see life be released there. It's just, it's so important. And it, that's, that's the beginning of freedom for all of us. So, and again, you won't, you won't do that if you're just looking at the outside, at the physical, at, at people around you, because you'd be like, oh, they might judge me, or they might this or that, or I might be ostracized. But if you have God's heart in mind, if you live in integrity before him, then you're free to share the things that you struggle with. Because even though you might be struggling, you guys know that God's favor rests on you, right? This is important for you guys to hear. God's favor is always the first move. God's favor comes towards us first, and then we walk out things from that. So even when you're struggling, if you know that God's favor rests on you, then you won't feel insecure about sharing even the things that you struggle with. Because you know, like, God accepts me in this way, and you can offer that to other people around you. I just, I took longer with that than I kind of meant to, but I think it's really important. God's favor is the first move, guys. It rests. It rests on us. We walk from that, not towards it, if that makes sense. All right. So Nehemiah, he didn't like, he didn't try to control the situation with the king. He was just honest. And that right there, that represents him. He was like, taking his efforts to control the situation before the king by being happy, and he just dropped them. He's like, I'm not going to try to control this. I'm going to be real and see what happens. Risky move. And uh, so let's, let's read about it and see what happens here. We made it to verse 4. So this is not an encouraging beginning for... Uh, for Nehemiah, because it seems like the king is like, oh, he just... Want something from me. So the king said to me, after he's like, after he was sad, he's like, what is it you want? Uh, and his answer is great. He said, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. And uh, right there, that question, like, hung in the air for, you can almost see him, like he, to him, to Nehemiah, that question was in the air for like three hours. It was probably just a few seconds. But that's the moment of tension where uh, bad things could have happened to him. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? So it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forests, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. So let's just stop there for a minute. I love that. There's a, there's a moment in uh, every God-given vision, I think, where 
you kind of have to swallow hard and go for it. And um, this was that moment for Nehemiah. And uh, he, the only way that he was able to do that, I think, is by living in the view of God. Like, if there's no higher king than the one he's in front of, then no city is really worth it, you know? But if this thing is on God's heart and God could back you up, then that's how you could ask a crazy question like that. Because this guy's like a trusted advisor. You know, the cupbearer, his job is taste the wine before the king, make sure it's not poisoned. So he would taste it, then wait, you know? In a few minutes, he's still alive, good. Bring it to the king. That's his job. And so a super position of trust that person says, okay, I don't really want to be in your court anymore. I want to leave. That uh, is potentially treasonous request. That's worse than just being sad. I mean, being sad, you know, is one thing. But this is like, now he's asking for something um, pretty weighty. And, uh, you know, like I said, he... You know, maybe he waited till a second glass of wine. Maybe he waited. It says the queen was sitting right next to the king, so maybe he was waiting for the mercy, you know, or him to feel a little softer in his heart because she was there. But it still is a request that uh, could have potentially just been a suicide mission. But you can see, do you guys see in the verse how living in God's presence, like, made this possible? So he says... In verse 5, he's like, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. And that, I mean, that's how God's presence makes possible all sorts of things in our lives. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I did this. It's like the prayer and then the step. Boom. And they can almost happen simultaneously. Like, you can almost hear him praying in his mind as he's saying, you know, may the king live forever. You know, that's his, like, stall. Like, oh. May you live forever. Here I go, you know. And uh, so that's his, uh, that's his way of living in God's presence, is staying in, in prayer in that moment. Now, those like moment-by-moment prayers are good. It's awesome to live a life of prayer before God like that. But it's not magical. Um, it's not like a silver bullet. It's not like sufficient in itself. You guys see that what Nehemiah was doing when he prayed that prayer was he was calling back to four months before God's face, seeking God's heart, learning God's will. He's like, God, you, this was your heart. I believe this was you. You called me to do this. All that like stored faith and power from the prayers of four months, he was calling back to that. So the moment prayer is good, but it's good when it's, it's really good when it's rooted in a life of prayer that's a foundation that you can call back to in the crisis. If you only pray when you're in crisis, you might not always like the things that come out of you. But if you live life before the king always and have his will, when you get to a crisis situation, when you get squeezed, you know, you, the sponge gets squeezed, you'll find that the good stuff comes out. That's been a crazy thing to me because... A while ago, God just, like, asked me to go on walks with him, you know. I would just go on walks, and I would sort of talk to God, but it didn't really seem like anything was happening. Um, 
but afterwards I noticed that in times of like severe stress, like like a word would come, I would just say the right thing and it would it would be right. Or I would like have do something for somebody that just opened something up. And I realized later that like God, that foundation is what like he he builds in us so that in crisis it comes out. So it's good to pray in the moment. That's a great model. I prayed to the God of heaven and fill in the blank. But it's meant to be rooted in a life of prayer and receiving God's heart like we talked about last week. Um, You know, I prayed to the God of heaven and I asked my neighbor if I could pray for him. You know, those kind of things. We don't usually have life or death stuff come up, but sometimes some of it feels so scary that we don't do it, right? There's probably things that you feel scared and don't do. So this is a place where you can apply that. Anytime you feel like that, just think about it's, a, it's a, t- a chance for you to live before the true king instead of before the influence of men. A cool thing about this prayer and prayer and answer is uh, it was like an alignment in Nehemiah's life. So what he said to the king, which was like a request, was the same thing as his prayer to God. In fact, you could read it what he said as if he was talking to God or to the king. So when he says he prayed and answered the king, and maybe they were the same thing. May the king live forever. (laughs) If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah. So, hey, he was asking Artaxerxes to do that, but he's also God. He's like, hey, if I found favor in your sight, you have to send me to Judah where my father is buried so I can rebuild it. And you can see, like, as he was willing to be real, like, that aligned in him. Like, his, his real prayer, it, it came out. You see how, like, the, the audience before the human king gave him a chance to, like, align with his ongoing audience before the king of heaven. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a... Is a really dangerous request, like I said. The, and it could have gone a lot of different ways. I think he had to get to the point where he was okay with it either way. So he was probably nervous, like I was saying, in that time when the question was hanging there. But then it's really cool how, living, how his life lived in prayer allowed him to, once the king was like, okay, how long are you going to be gone for? Once he was like that, he didn't, like, freak out, you know. But he actually, what he did, if, you, if we read there, is that he recognized God's favor on him, and he pressed into it. So this went from being, like, he was risking being real. Then he made a request that was really dangerous. And then it turned into, like, this really became a, a real whopper. He said... Like, oh, I can go. Well, um, okay, could you write me some letters so that I can have safe passage to the place I'm going? Oh, and also, I'm, would you just give me all the wood that I need for the doors and the walls in my house and the citadel for free from the king's forest? <laughs> so he, like, he had this, like, presence of mind somehow. He, he pressed in. Like, he's, like, he saw... What it, for, saw it for what it was, that the gracious hand of God was on him. He says that later. And in that moment, he, he didn't just ask for a little. 
he went ahead and asked for everything that he needed. You know? That's something for us. We set our sights too low. Man, if you don't, I mean, I mean, I want to see our church do great, but if we just have a great church, I feel like that's too small. I want to see a great city. Maybe we could just spread it to all of Ohio. You know, like, let's ask God for all the things that we really need. You know? You want to know what the coolest part about that is? After he asked for all that, not only did the king give him all that, but he actually gave him even more. Like, the king took that ginormous request and went above and beyond it. Because you read in verse 9 that the king also had sent army officers and cavalry with him. So, in addition to all the things that he asked for, he actually did better than letters of passage. He just sent the army with him to Judah which is pretty great. And we'll find out in a later chapter that he made Nehemiah the governor of the province that he was going to. So the favor of God is like that. When it's flowing, it's overflowing. And when it's flowing, I mean, by that I mean always. That's how God always is. His provision is always abundant like that. A lot of times we don't believe that we walk in it or that something like that could be provided for us. But I want to. You know, I'm preaching to myself there. I don't always believe this, if I'm going to be honest. Because if I believed it, I would act different. But I want to. I want to start acting that way. And that's what I'm like, that's what I'm challenging all of us to do. Like, believe God for this kind of favor. It can really happen in any situation. I guarantee that your job is less dangerous and corrupt than a pagan kingdom. I'll just take a risk and say that that's probably true. God can give you favor there. Your city, even if you live in East Cleveland, is less dangerous and corrupt than the pagan situation that Nehemiah found himself in. There is no such thing as a lost cause. I mean, we could see, if you ever just drive through East Cleveland, we could see that become a thriving place of life. And that starts getting me excited when I talk about it. (laughs) I mean, hmm. But let me just finish up, because I don't want to be like, oh, God's favor just overflows all the time and not be like reading the next part, because this whole next part of the chapter is all about all the problems that Nehemiah started to face then. So God's favor doesn't come without any problems attached to it, because his favor is the very thing that the enemy hates and will try to fight against. But you need to know that you operate from favor, that favor is the first move, because otherwise when you hit the problems, you'll think, oh, maybe God didn't really want me to do this. Like, oh, well, he might be trying to get me to stop, like, or, he, or just that he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care about the things I care about, which is not true, because if there's anything good in your heart that you care about, that came from God in the first place anyway. So Nehemiah faced some problems, but just look as, as he faces his problems, how his perspective stays on what the true king is doing. Um, verse 9, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, and the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Sweet. So here's the introduction of the bad guys of Nehemiah, which will reappear throughout the coming weeks. You'll see him again. So when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite 
official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So I went to Jerusalem. I went. Uh, that was 800 miles of walking. Uh, so another four months of the vision being delayed. It's, you guys see how like you need a heavenly perspective to get through something like this. Um, but Nehemiah was like so focused. Like it takes somebody that's really focused on like the hand of God and the good things going to just bypass 800 miles of walking. Like we went there. Okay, we got there. But that's what he was doing. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there were no horses with me except the one I was riding on. So by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Then they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked, Are you rebelling against the king? But I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So, I don't know. I love the way that he handled these guys. Um, so Nehemiah was made the governor of this province, but that province didn't have a governor before. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were the governors of the three right around it, and they had all kind of just divvied up the influence over the place where Nehemiah was. So he was taking back territory in a way that they were not happy about. Man, the cool thing about it is like, Nehemiah, his response is like really forceful, but not arrogant. You know, he doesn't appeal to his status with the human king or anything great about himself. He goes right to the God of heaven is going to give us the success that we need, and you're not going to have any part of it. And I mean, that's kind of like a little like offensive almost, but he, he saw the true reality there. He saw that the opposition was not like part of God's plan, and he saw that God would defeat it because he lived before the real king, not before these guys that were trying to, you know, just mess with them. And they'll keep messing with them. You'll, you'll keep seeing them. But the thing that I really want to end with is <laughs> that Nehemiah, he didn't, uh, he was not a motivational speaker. He didn't get the people to come back with a grand rebuilding vision and plan. In fact, he didn't tell any of the people that went back with him what he wanted to do for Jerusalem until he got there. And, you know, maybe that was his strategy, or maybe he just was too scared to try to sell it. I mean, it's not like the people that went with him, they wanted to go back, because this was their homeland, so it wasn't like he was pulling their leg. But then he 
asked him to do this massive project. I mean, it says all the he went to every gate, and they were not one of them was standing. Like they were all gone. And in the one place, there was so much rubble that his horse couldn't even get through. Did you guys catch that? Like he's like getting them to build a ten foot thick, ten foot or more tall wall around a whole city. And the only way he could do that and get them to look past the, the like, you know, the, really the desolation, it was a hopeless, potentially a hopeless situation, like such a big project that it's overwhelming. But he did it, you know, the same way that he did everything else. He just, he just called them to live before the true king. He just, he, you see, he, he showed them the problem, and then he told them about the gracious hand of God that was upon him. And he told them what the king had said and all the favor that he'd walked in. And so in doing that, he called them to live before the king. I want to finish with that because a life that's lived before the true king always calls other lives to live that way. That's how it always works. You know, hopefully, like, a sermon delivered before the true king calls you guys to live before him and not just, like, think, oh, did a good job. When we live our life before God, it always multiplies. It always multiplies. People around you, they can't help it. It's inspiring. And, man, do you guys want, I want to be that kind of presence in people's lives, in this city, you know? I want to be living my life in the true reality. Then when people see it, they're like, hey, you see things differently. There's a peace on you in the midst of trouble that, I need, and we can get a chance to call other people into the same blessing that we walk in.